0: Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. As we come to the end of this series of podcasts about power to the people, we explore the cost of energy, not just financially, but a more intangible cost to our biodiversity and wildlife. While consumers are wincing at the price of energy, the natural world is paying the ultimate price decimation of habitat that can never be restored. Is it worth it? In our last episode, we looked at the cost to marine habitats, and today, we're looking at what's happening on land. What price are our coastal heaths, shores, and wetlands paying for the energy revolution at sea? And as it's Christmas, we also have a good news wildlife story. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Sally Bunce, who describes herself as an ex-police officer turned marine conservationist, And Sally is the SEAL Protection Officer for the Marine Conservation Society in Teesside. Sally, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. My second guest, Isabel Morris, is the RSPB's Senior Policy Officer for Energy. Isabel, hi, thanks so much for coming.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: And lurking in the wings, if it's such if it's an appropriate way of describing it, we have Charlie Sachs, who's the Wildlife Learning Officer for the Suffolk Wildlife Trust. And she's going to share with us her good news story. So hello, Charlie, and we'll hear from you in a minute. Hello. Lovely to be here. So um, many of you will probably have heard about what's been happening up in Teesside over the last year or so. But I wonder if, Sally, I could ask you to just perhaps fill us in a little bit and tell us exactly what is going on on your patch up there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, October 2021, we suffered a mass die-off of um, crustaceans, mainly crab and lobster. And there was tens of thousands of them, um, which washed up dead around the 6th of October. And slowly that spread down as far as Bridlington. And in the last year, we have suffered multiple die-offs of all sorts of marine species, including porpoises. Uh, We've just had one recently of shrimp. Um, But the impact it's had, obviously, on seals is the seal pups, when they're weaned off, will basically scavenge the bottom. They haven't yet learned to chase the fish. um, but There's been nothing for them to eat. So last winter we saw... Um, most of the grey seal pups were less than their birth weight when they should have been sort of 30 kilos. They were 9 and 10 kilos. And then in the summer, we had the common seals who pupped in the River Tees, and the bulk of those have died as a result of mouth infections and emaciation. And we think the mouth infections are caused through suppressed immune systems um, because of the chemical contaminants that are in the Tees, because We're creating a free port. It's the UK's first free port since, I think, 2012. It's a flagship free port. Um, And as part of that, they're dredging out uh, millions of tonnes of toxic sediment, which unfortunately contains the um, toxic history of the River Tees. Um, At one time, the River Tees was the most toxic river in the whole of um, Europe. Um, And whilst we've cleaned up the, the water this sediment remains um, toxic and harbouring um, that history. And um, We're now dredging it out um, and dumping it at sea to be able to create this key. And ironically, the main use of the key is going to be to transport wind turbines um, out to sea. So in the process of furthering green energy, we're actually killing um, an entire marine ecosystem.
0: Sally, that sounds absolutely horrific and terrifying. I know there has been pushback from the Freeport team and from, from part of the local community and certainly from the, the port authorities and the harbour authorities. They're saying that the, the die-off is actually caused by, by algae, aren't they? It's nothing to do with poisons in the, in the sediment in the teas.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was part of the meetings way back when it was first mooted that that could be the cause. Uh, And to be honest, a year ago, they were saying that this was their best um, guess and it was a hypothesis. And they've done nothing in the last year to tighten that up to be anything but a theory. So that still remains a theory, their best theory. However, you know, you don't get harmful algal blooms during the winter and we've had continual die-offs throughout the winter. Um, We've had four universities have worked extensively on on what's happened, including analysing um, sediments, analysing the dead crabs, and doing work on a chemical called pyridine, which was found at hugely elevated levels in the dead crabs. Um, And it's world-first experimentation that's gone on here, and it's proved that pyridine, is incredibly toxic to crustaceans um, and that we've actually found it in 10 out of 12 locations within the River Tees, despite Defra saying pyridine wasn't present. You know, we've done our own sampling and we found it. So we've got the work of four universities who's saying, you know, the cause, there's a massive link to the dredging. Um, So much so we've had the Environmental Select Committee hearing a few weeks ago in which quite strong recommendations were made regarding... Um, further testing and, you know, potential um, pausing of the dredge. Um, but that, unfortunately, has been watered down by Teresa Coffey, who's come back with a request for an independent committee to look at the evidence that's already been done in a timely fashion, but has asked for no further work to be done. So in the meantime, the fishermen continue to fund the work from these four universities to tighten up the evidence that they came up with um, a few weeks back. Which, to be honest, it, it's groundbreaking and it's so solid, is the evidence. We're absolutely shocked that there hasn't been a call for a pause on this capital dredging.
0: I suppose the problem is that the local communities stand to benefit significantly from the building of the Freeport, don't they? So yeah. so this is, you know, and as you say, it's ironic that the, the purpose of the key is to, to ship out, you know, turbines for what we know we need, which is clean, renewable energy. So there must be some very powerful financial drivers to, um, to, to keeping the, the project on track and also going ahead with the building of the quay. I'm assuming if the dredging stops, that means the quay will have to stop, the Freeport would have to stop. Is that true?
2: Um, it would potentially delay it, yes. Um, but Theresa but Coffey has asked for um, the findings of this committee by mid-January. So, you know, we're not looking at a, a massive pause. We're looking at, you know, a matter of, you know, a month. Um, but once this one point um, seven million tons of you know highly contaminated sediment is dumped off our shores, you can't remediate the sea. Um, so for the sake of pausing it until we find out, you know what the impact will be and has been from this dredged material, um, it, it, it seems incredibly foolhardy not to put that that short pause. On it, but like you said, there are deadlines have been promised to most of the companies who are coming to Teesside uh, from a broad South Korean company, um, say, a wind, um, and they've been promised deadlines, and I think that's a problem. Funds won't be released until deadlines are met. Um, but as I keep telling people, there is no growth on a dead planet. You know, um, I mean, Gary Caldwell from Newcastle University has already said we have witnessed the collapse of an entire ecosystem. You know the barnacles are missing from the foreshores. Everything's missing. You know, as far as thirty miles south, it the 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 rocks look like they've been sandblasted. You know, this is it's really quite serious. Sally, it's
0: horrific. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. It sounds cataclysmic, actually, and 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 almost apocalyptic. It's a really really depressing story you've been sharing with us, Isabel. We're in a real bind, aren't we? Because we desperately need clean, renewable energy we need offshore wind onshore wind green alternatives to fossil fuels you know we're all uh, reeling from the shock of the, the idea that there might be a new coal mine about to open you know we've made commitments internationally globally here in the UK and then we come up against an issue of the kind that Sally's described I mean this makes you know must make energy policy decisions very difficult I mean how, how do you view things from where you sit at the RSPB
1: well, I think this is one. This is something that we're considering at the moment at the RSPB. So my role was actually created in the wake of the Ukraine crisis um, and the challenges that that poses for our energy security in the UK. And we're kind of reviewing our energy policies um, at the moment with in mind our commitment to net zero 2045 and also an awareness that we've actually got a commitment to, in the UK to... Um, a net zero 2030 power grid. So, yeah, this is a really big challenge. We, you know, we're very supportive of onshore uh, renewables. Um, that's kind of my, particularly my area of uh, specialism. But but they need to be done in the right way and in the right place. Um, so there's kind of strategic need, leadership uh, role to be taken that, that currently a gap uh, being left by government there.
0: Um, you're the RSPB. You're a bird charity. Um, why are you thinking about energy? I mean, you should be thinking about birds.
1: Well, I think we, I mean, obviously, in order to reach net zero, we have to have large amounts of renewable energy infrastructure development. Um there's no, there's no denying that. And reaching net zero is crucial for fighting biodiversity loss that we're seeing. So that's one side of it. Um, but also we know that renewable en- energy infrastructure development, if done wrong, can be very harmful. So it's important that we kind of find pathways that can best support biodiversity and minimize harmful impacts where they happen so that's kind of where we see our role fitting into it because we know that kind of there's this gap in in looking at both renewables and biodiversity together and the impact that renewables have.
0: How much influence can something like a charity, like the RSPB, have on on government policy? I mean, you've called for a, for a new strategy, and we'd all love an energy, joined up energy strategy. Well, any kind of energy strategy really would be good. Let's be honest. How much influence can something like a charity like yours actually have on how policies developed?
1: Well, I think it's it's kind of it's partly about building relationships with government and kind of. Um, through our casework as well, but also um, about building relationships with industry. Um, We've got an excellent uh, partnership um, with a company called Light Rock Power, who uh, have made a commitment to 20% biodiversity net gain at their sites. And as part of that, we provide advice on their sites and, um, and how best that they can support biodiversity. And... They've actually seen at one of their sites, they've seen uh, more than a 200% gain. Um, so I think that there, is, there are kind of various ways for influencing policy. And it's partly about relationship building and also about raising awareness. I think there's a real lack of institutional awareness um, in the energy sector. And there's kind of this assumption that, well, it's renewable, it's helping net zero. Therefore, it must be just good. Um, But actually, we need people to be more aware that it has to be done in the right way, and more forward thinking.
0: How would that help what's happening in Teesside, or or can you not? Because I mean, presumably, if they don't build the the jetty, they can't get the turbines out, and if we don't get the turbines out, we can't have that particular wind farm. Um, I think. How can we how can we influence policies? uh, You know, how can we influence conversations that 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 Sally is trying to have?
1: I think it's about strategic planning. So I think it's about you know we recognise we're we're absolutely supportive of renewables and we recognise that we have to have a large amount of renewable development to meet net zero. But it's about strategic spatial planning and it's about um, a kind of joined up approach between the major stakeholders involved. And that's what's lacking at the moment. Um, and as I've said, it's about that institutional awareness. And I think where kind of wildlife NGOs play that role can play that role is in raising awareness and also kind of encouraging supporters to uh, take take up arms as it were against mm. um, developments where they're done in the wrong place and in the wrong way um, and also kind of raising awareness amongst in amongst industry players that actually it's in their interests if that to do things properly because and as time goes on they need to protect their reputations so it's kind of it's in their interest for for them to do things well and I think putting applying pressure to them um will help with that.
0: Mm. Sally would it help with you do you think what's happening on the ground with you and and more importantly what's happening out at sea in in the teas applying some pressure around reputation and you know risk to those companies that are involved is that
2: going to be helpful to you? Absolutely I, I mean the things that... <laughs> This key can go ahead. The free port can go ahead. But the way they're doing this dredging and the construction work, there have been no environmental impact assessments done in some situations because there are loopholes around construction which allow them not to need them to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the dredging can be done with a cofferdam in place around the dredged area, which stops the plume spreading into the river and then going out to sea. And, Where stuff is too toxic to go to sea, which, to be fair, all of that 1.7 million tonnes, in some circumstances, fails the OSPAR requirements, but they apply contextualization and say, well, actually, we've got a toxic river. That's what we'd expect. It's not got any worse from three years ago, so we'll let it carry on going to sea. So they are bending rules, which they shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing, but the fact is we have a company who came forward and said, we can decontaminate all of this 2 million tonnes of toxic sediment and then repurpose it for building materials. Now, we had a package put together, but unfortunately, the organisation doing this work um, weren't interested in even looking at it. And because they'd been given the tip to go ahead doing it how they were doing it, um, they've carried on. So there's been nobody putting pressure on them to pick that route of least damage, and that is very much what's needed. So there are systems there to do this safely, in harmony with the environment. But yes, it will take slightly longer, and yes, it might cost a little bit more, but we simply can't keep on bulldozing and straight lining straight through the environment to keep costs down and get things done quicker.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. I have to ask you, what's an OSPAR? OSPA, it's it's regulations that are applied through, you probably know more than I do, um, through Europe. And it's a set of chemicals which they have to test for. And again, they don't take into account the toxic history of the teas so something else we're asking for is when they have this you know suite of chemicals that they have to test for they should look at what's going on in the teas and go actually would also expect to find pyridine because that's a byproduct of the coke industry and the steel um, manufacturing and whatever else you'd expect to find but instead they stick to these certain chemicals that europe say they have to test for which means that Unfortunately, we have chemicals which are prevalent in the Ts, which are not even getting tested for. So OSPAR govern the, the levels at which things can and can't go to sea. But through interrogating the uh, Marine Management Organization's public register and the CFAS comments on these levels, it's been quite clear that these levels are being breached um, and contextualisation is being applied to these results So, you know, we're also calling for a complete overhaul of dredging legislation because what we've also found is those people doing these constructions, the clients, are actually allowed to take their own samples. Now, it's not in their interest um, to find contaminants above levels that they're allowed. So it doesn't matter who tests it. If they're getting their own samples, we're trusting them. In fact, the MMO said to me, we apply a degree of trust. Now, when you're talking about multi-billion pound construction, can you really carry on applying a degree of trust? They simply have to be taken by an independent body. Yeah, it sounds like there
0: is regulation. I mean, the sorts of things you've been describing, the things Isabel's describing, there is regulation, there are checks and balances in the system. We have rules that 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 were they followed, we wouldn't have these outcomes. But what's happening is people are taking no notice of any of the rules, uh, riding roughshod over them or going round the problem in order to do what they what they want to do and achieve that. And one has to question, you know, what the motivation is here. And I suspect it's profit. Sally, can you just tell us how is the community reacting? I mean, it has to, because this is probably, I mean, I'm sitting up here in Suffolk <laughs> along with Charlie, and we've got a very big, very controversial project on our doorstep, which obviously is affecting the RSPB, which is size will see, um, and D, two new nuclear reactors on this bit of Suffolk coast. And the community is, not pretty much split, but there's certainly divisions across the community. Some people are in favour, some people are against. H- how is your community reacting? Because there must be people who look at the
2: Freeport and think, great, jobs in an area of deprivation its just what we need. Yeah, I mean, very much we have a split community um, because they are being promised 20,000 new well-paid jobs. Um, so a lot of people are focusing on that. But what we have seen is decimation of our ancient industries like the fishing industry you know that is still on its knees you know we've, we've lost so many boats and um, families have given up but also we have the tourism industry who are watching this with a sense of fear uh, because potentially um we believe that this toxic sediment will spread probably down as far as norfolk yes. um and you know you've got whitby scarborough places like that have nothing but tourism and potentially they could lose their tourism. Um, so and to be honest, the feeling I'm getting now is that people want this to be hauled back in and done properly. People are genuinely becoming quite fearful now that they're going to end up with beaches they can't go on, see they can't go in, you know, because it was well documented in the you know late sixties that if you buried yourself in the sand at Redka, you would get chemical burns. You know, and that's what we're potentially releasing back into our inshore waters. So I think, to be honest, I think now if we were to do a vote, we would side on the side of of caution and say, right, let's pause this and let's do it right and let's find out what's going on, you know. And people are genuinely worried. And the fishermen, like I say, we were were out today um, having a get-together and a bit of a protest, and they're just on Mm. their knees, um, you know, and can't see a way Mm. forward.
0: I think Therese Coffey's inbox must be quite full because I know that there are a lot of people around here who are writing to her all of the time. So, Isabel, you probably wouldn't want to swap places with her right now, would you?
1: <laughs> well, I think it's it's a real shame what's happening um, at RSPB Minsmere. I think, you know, we have worked kind of constructively in the past um, in terms of looking at how to achieve a nature-sensitive uh, grid infrastructure system, but we are very, very concerned about the Suffolk proposals. We're trying to put pressure on Natural on National Grid to look at more strategic options for these sites. But I think that is, with Therese coffee, that is really one good example of where public pressure is forcing politicians to actually take notice. um, Because, you know, of course, although she's in the government, she's the environment secretary, she's also in a very difficult position as the Suffolk Coastal MP. And we um, have seen her calling for um, National Grid to take a more, uh, and BASE, the Department for Business, uh, Energy and Industrial Strategy, sorry, (laughs) um, to take a more in-depth look at the environmental impacts And she has said that she was uh, very upset about them not attending uh, a public meeting recently um, on the proposals. So I think that's, you know, we can we can apply public pressure um, and that forces politicians to look at proposals. But it's also about kind of having a background policy awareness and approach about what can we say? Well, okay, if we don't want these interconnector cables uh, here, What else do we want elsewhere that we can support and what can say is actually good for wildlife? And at the RSPB, we take the approach that onshore wind and solar in particular um, are really good for wildlife when they're done um, in the right way uh, and we've been supportive of the proposals to remove uh, the restrictions against onshore wind so long as it's done in a way that minimises harmful impacts to nature and isn't impinging uh, on crucial sites then uh, you know we're, we're happy for those to go forward because there is a need to re- reach net zero. I know for a fact
0: living up here as I do very close to, to some of those sites there is huge public pressure on on the minister and there's also a really i don't know really genuine community wide sense of fear that we might be about to lose something incredibly precious you know 1% of the global um sandy heath is up here on this bit of coast and not to mention RSPB Minsbeer, which we've had on the pod in the past it's you know just celebrated its 75th anniversary and also some of the other very special areas of anob and and, and wildlife the problem in us is i guess you know people would say we need these these energy projects, they have to go somewhere. Nobody wants them. What are we what are we going to do? But you your call for a strategy and a and a nature positive approach sounds to me as if that is the way forward. I think I'd like to understand a little bit more about how that would work. When we say nature positive in terms of a big energy project, what what could that look like? I mean, I've got visions of big solar parks with lots of kind of wildflower planting and sheep, but I mean it's probably a bit more it's a bit more strategic than that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I think first of all, um, okay, so we've got this big energy security crisis going on at the moment that's kind of brought the problem to the forefront, but we were always going to have this problem um, as time went on um, in terms of energy security. I think first of all, consumers can do one thing to help by improving the energy efficiency of their own homes. Uh, That makes a huge difference because it's it's a form of demand reduction so it actually means that we have less pressure on the energy system and i think it's about it's about educating industry so that industry prioritizes this and sees that it's in their interest to develop sites that are done well uh, our sector advice team works with a um solar solar company uh to advise them um on how to best improve biodiversity at their sites so they have things like I think they have uh, hedgehog um, tunnels, uh, they sow wildflowers, they have kind of, uh, they have bird and bat boxes on their sites and they plant new trees and hedgerows so that they actually improve the biodiversity. Um, because often with solar farms in particular, um, it's actually often not high agricultural grade land that's being used. And it may just be a field uh, that's got very little on it in, in terms of for in in terms of hedgerows and trees and so on. And actually, solar farms can improve quite a lot um, when they're done well, what's available uh, for invertebrate and for birds um, and small small mammals. So there are things that can be done
0: yeah, they're not permanent, are they? Like a sucking great nuclear power station. Yes. You <laughs> <laughs> can move them. So, so, yeah. so we need to lobby our MPs. We need to be active. We need to be pushing for a strategy that's nature positive. We need to be campaigning against things that are detrimental and destructive. Sally, what can listeners do to help you up in the side? I mean, your horrific picture you painted. I've just got my eyes of just full of pictures of dead seals now. It's just really distressing. What can What can we do to help you?
2: Well, we've just been asking people. Um, well, they've they've been really generous in supporting the fishermen with their GoFundMe page. Because so far they've spent about forty thousand pounds on legal fees and and university um, investigative work. And um, so they've been supporting us in that way. But also just on lobbying their local MPs, um, asking for um, you know this independent inquiry. And it has worked because we've now got most of the local Tees Valley councils have come on board with a motion. Um, to do their own independent investigation. Um, but obviously, time is not on our side now. You know, this mm. 1.7 million tonnes will be out by March. They're due to start any day. Um, and things are getting quite desperate now for us. Um, but certainly, the more pressure we can get from people, from lobbying their local MP, because what's also concerning is this is not just a side issue. There are eight of these free ports to be rolled out around the United Kingdom. And they're all in highly toxic rivers such as the Mersey, you know, and they're all going to need masses of dredging going on. So potentially, you know, we could be contaminating our entire inshore waters around the United Kingdom, you know. So, to, you know, if you know you're going to get a free port, you know, you really need to start lobbying your local MP and ask that what has happened in Teesside is used as an example of how it can be done badly and can destroy Mm. ecosystems and you know we've kind of acknowledged now that we're probably not going to stop this 1.7 million tons but what we're hoping is that our sacrifice isn't in vain because we have done so much research and we have proved so much and we hope that will help other areas to make sure that their projects are done right
0: well well Sally that's very generous of you but we hope we can stop it Yes. And, we you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call on all listeners to, you know, because it doesn't matter if you're on Teesside or anywhere down this East Coast. It's It sounds like the toxic sludge is coming your way. And also we can't afford to lose any of our marine ecosystem anywhere you know it's it's precious it's fragile we need to protect it it's been a slightly depressing episode so we're asking you Charlie (laughs) based up here in Suffolk to give us a good news story I mean you've been listening in and I I know you, you at the Suffolk Wildlife Trust are concerned about some of the the energy infrastructure projects on the Suffolk coast and how it's going to impact some of the migratory species and and the general habitat but you have also got a good news story to share with us, haven't you? I certainly do, and uh, I
3: mean the pressure's on, but I think I can take it, Amanda. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so we do as as uh, Wildlife Trust, we do work uh, to fight for nature, and it has actually um, become quite desperate. But this good news story is it might be a desperate solution and not one that can can solve everything. But we have a brand new nature reserve for Suffolk. So just as some land has been um, irreparable for nature, um, this is 290 acres, 120 hectares um, on the River Deben, River Deben, um, uh, Suffolk coast and heaths. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. We have salt marsh, we have mudflats, we have ancient woodland. It is currently farmland. Um, And it is going to be uh, our new nature reserve for Suffolk. So we will be letting nature take the lead. And it's
0: very exciting and it's very positive. And I love telling people about it. So are you going to, in the words of one of your kind of the Northumbrian Wildlife Trust, are you going to wild back the land rather than rewild it? Are you just going to let it be to let some wilding go on? Or how are you going to create the nature reserve from what, what is currently agricultural land?
3: Yes, yeah, so we will be letting take le, ne, so we will be letting nature take the lead. Absolutely, um, we at the moment it is farmed for another year. We've got a million pounds still to raise to secure the purchase. We've been really lucky. We were given a very significant sum of legacy funding. Um, we had to make up the difference, um, and we took out a loan, a philanthropic loan from the Royal Wildlife um, Society. So that million pounds needs to be paid back in a year. So at the moment, our our focus is on fundraising um, to pay that back. We're quite sure we can do it. Um, the power of the land is just so magnificent. It's already gorgeous, and just leaving nature to to do its thing and really just fight back. Uh, we think it will. We think it will fight back quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that it has been organic. Uh, who knows what's in the seed bank? We've got yeah so many hedges around there's, there's so many birds so many reptiles there already um we're, we're quite excited about what could come back
0: mm. and will there be any flooding because there is a bit of a, a there's a river and a floodplain there as well you're going to let that happen naturally we're going to get a bit of a yeah floodplain?
3: yeah so that's i mean we will see at the moment we are very much watching and learning and uh, like uh, uh, sally kind of said really we we don't want to rush into anything. We really want to see what is nature doing so fantastically there already. The last thing you want to do is do something in the name of, of doing something good for nature. And it disturbs um, what's what's already working well there. But the, the land historically was a floodplain. I think it wants to be a floodplain. So we will definitely be thinking about that um, and thinking about other ways we can restore what was there before but but very much letting nature lead us on this um not rushing into anything but it's well,
0: Charlie, uh, i'm going to grab my wellies in about six months time and i'm going to come and have a look and you can walk me around and we can see how far we've got because that would be great <laughs> or at the end absolutely. of the year whenever how long it takes we'll be there to just catch up with your story i'd absolutely love that that would be amazing and obviously, you've got a crowdfunder, and Sally, you've got a crowdfunder, and it is Christmas, so we always ask people to give money at Christmas. So if people want to find your crowdfunding pages, we'll make sure that they go out on the twitter and um um and we'll also pop them on our our website, so we'll make sure that those get out so people can support you and It's really good to end um this series on a on a on a positive note um we've been looking at talking about people's engagement in nature and the power. <laughs> power of people's movements if you like to, to to fight back when nature needs a helping hand so sally we wish you all the best of luck um i keep fighting and i'm sure You're there well. are lots of people who will come and uh, you know chain themselves to dredgers or whatever is necessary to to, to stop this so yes. <laughs> we'll put a call out for some action on your behalf yes. And and it's great to know that the RSPB are thinking strategically about energy because you are a powerful movement and have a powerful voice. So, so if anyone can influence um, the policymakers, I'm sure it's you. So, huge thank you to my guests Isabel, Sally, and Charlie for joining us today. And uh, don't go away, listeners, because we have the final episode of Animal, Vegetable, Mineral at the end of the show. But in the meantime, thank you very much, all of you, for for being with us. It's been fascinating. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.
4: PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com.
0: So we come to our last animal vegetable mineral um, of the year, and it's been a short series so far, but absolutely fascinating, and I'm delighted to welcome um, back into the studio, Jim, our executive producer. Jim, a few crumbs of comfort in that podcast, in amongst all the toxic sludge.
4: Yeah, they were, weren't they? Uh, really, quite depressing story, wasn't it, to start off with? But on the other hand, you know, uh, the message there is that we can do something about it, and let's, you know, make sure we all stand up for nature. I guess. Uh, but, but yes, as you right? I mean, uh, I think Charlie gave some some really great, um, you know, a really good news story there, and I think that's uh, so excited to, to hear that a new nature reserve has been home for all sorts of things that we can go and look at and enjoy and be part of the biodiversity
0: yeah just what we need as we as we close the year with probably what is a very unsatisfactory cop on biodiversity but what have you got up your sleeve this afternoon well
4: well good question amanda i'm gonna i'm gonna go for animal for uh, an animal for today's subject uh which i thought you know it's something that should be uh, um abundant in all the habitats that we, we've been talking about although perhaps not the sea although uh, a bit of a clue darwin uh, did find some in the rigging of beagle uh, these things have really grabbed my attention since i f- i photographed one in real close up uh, you know a short while ago and i just realized how amazingly beautiful uh, diverse and and absolutely fascinating creatures these things are uh, but they often get really bad press and some people have a really deep seated fear of them uh, but they're generally harmless uh, certainly in the uk and they're one of our largest and most diverse uh, and important groups of invertebrates Uh, so I'm going to give you some more clues here so before I ask you what you think they are they control uh, crop pests they get rid of flies and biting insects in our homes they produce a material which has an amazing medical uh, and engineering properties Uh, and it's been estimated that there are up to 800 of these in a square meter of uncut meadow Uh, and we've got about 680 species of them native in the UK any ideas
0: have they got a number of legs
4: uh, they could have. They could have. I'll give you some another cl- some other clues. <laughs> names. Some names. Cricket bat, Sputnik, wasp, and zebra. I mean, there are lots more names, but those are some of the names.
0: Well, I thought they might be spiders, but
4: yeah, are they spiders? Right. spiders? Spiders. Yeah, spiders. I didn't yeah. know
0: that Darwin <laughs> discovered spiders in the in the uh, yeah, sails of it, the Beagle
4: in the beginning really? did, yeah. well yeah anyway and since we're, we're really close to the the holiday season i'm gonna to put together a simply super spider quiz for you okay <laughs> watch so. out anybody who
0: is an arachnophobe and therefore exactly not exactly yes talking about spiders isn't quite so bad
4: well spiders. i hope that this might this might help sort of perhaps ease the ease the, the, the pain um these are true and false. It's true or false. So you've got a 50% chance of getting the right answer. So it's a bit like penalty shootout. You either score or you don't score. All right. So
0: I am the Lionel Messi of podcasts here. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so question number one, Amanda. Spiders are insects. True or false? Oh,
0: God. I just got to expose my terrible ignorance
4: here. Uh, false. Oh, well done. Pulse. You're absolutely right. So you've scored on that one. Absolutely. Common mistake uh, uh, that they are insects, but uh, they do share some similarities. I mean, they're both arthropods, which means they've got jointed limbs. Uh, they've got an exoskeleton, i.e. skeleton outside their body, and they're seg- a segmented body. Uh, spiders are actually in a class uh, or uh, an order all of their own. So you have got their arachnida is the class, and an aranii is the order, if you want to be technical about it. Main differences: insects have a head, which is at the front, the thorax, which is the bit in the middle where the legs join to, uh, and an abdomen where all the rest of the bits and bodies, uh, bits of the body, are at the back. Uh, all the internal organs. And spiders, on the other hand, they've got two main body parts: a head and a thorax, which is called a cephalothorax, and an abdomen. Uh, insects have got three pairs of legs, and as you rightly said, spiders have four pairs. Uh, there are there are other differences, but I don't want to turn this too much of a zoology lesson for you. But uh, so, question number two. You can get stung by a spider. True or false?
0: No, I think that's probably true because that's the old black widow, isn't it?
4: Oh, Amanda! No,
0: am I? Is that a me?
4: You hit the crossbar on that one. <gasps> uh, no, false. Spiders don't have a sting in the tail like a, like a wasp or a bee. Somebody's probably going to call in and say I'm absolutely wrong, but no, spiders—they don't have a sting. So the thing—the pointy bits at the back of their abdomen—is actually the spinneret. Uh, which is connected to silk glands, which enables the spider to 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 deploy these fine threads of, of silk.
0: So, how uh, is it they can be poisonous if they don't sting you?
4: Well, they can bite. Um, so, you know, you see these horror movies where giant spiders come up and they sort of, you know, they their backside comes down and they sting. But that's, you know, that's that's, that's rubbish. So, uh, but they, yeah, I mean, they can bite, uh, and they have a bad press as a result of that. So, right. Now, uh, question number three: Spider silk. We talked about spider silk. Spider silk is five times stronger than steel. True or false?
0: Well, I think that's true because I know it's incredibly strong.
4: Yeah, absolutely, it's fantastic. Top right-hand corner of the goal, super, super shot. True. Uh, even though one strand is a thousand times thinner. Um, than a human hair it's incredibly strong uh, uh, which is one of the reasons why it's a what we call it it's a, it's a wonder material which is used in tough lightweight items and things like bulletproof vests for example that use spider silk each strand is actually made up of thousands of nano strands so-called so-called nano which are only 200 millionth of a millimeter and i can't even imagine what that's like it's tiny isn't it but, um, but it's also biocompatible, which means it's great for mes- medicinal use, for things like repair to skin, blood vessels, tendons, nerve sheaths, et cetera. So really fantastic. So
0: how do you do that? you want to make them bulletproof, Yes. how do you how do you harvest well, you, you, the silk you, from
4: spiders yeah you can you can harvest yes you can harvest it, but you can actually artificially i mean it's you know that some spider silk or the the, the composition has been sort of recognized and you can artificially manufacture it but i think the fact is the technology is there to do it but it's fantastic we've learned something from from nature but um but it used to be used you know in in times gone by when spider silk itself was used for for, for patching people up etc okay question number four uh, although spiders don't have wings, they can fly. True or false? So this is one where you you know you might have to the goalkeeper might move off his off his line slightly for.
0: Well, I guess they do, don't they? Because they go from very—I mean, you m- see them moving across a, a field or a room, and they can be from the top of a tree. So, so yes, ish, sort of. That's,
4: yeah, good. I like, that. Amanda. I like your thinking, the logic there. <laughs> that was good. It was a bit like hearing people on University Challenge talking it through. It's true, and I've already given it away in a way. Uh, Spiders—they can obviously walk, and they've got eight legs, and they're pretty pretty good at, at walking. Uh, but they can also disperse using their silk. Uh, so one of the one of the techniques that they use is called ballooning uh, so they stream out a length of silk from their backsides from their spinnerets uh, it catches on the breeze and when it's long enough it lifts the spider off you know they it counteracts the weight and it carries them off and sometimes they can travel hundreds or even thousands of kilometers which is where the the darwin beagle piece came in you know so he he noticed spiders clinging to the rigging when the beagle was way out at sea he couldn't he wondered why how on earth this could be they can also use a technique called repelling where a length of snil, uh, silk snags on a twig or a branch uh, and they, or another object. They then pull it tight and draw it into them and they can make a sort of tight rope and they crawl along that and they get from one side one, one where they are to the, to the other side, oh. which is absolutely amazing. So, so you know, clever. fantastic. It is, so clever. This is the last question, okay? Earlier this year... You've got to listen carefully to this one. Earlier this year, Perseverance, which was NASA's data gathering Mars rover vehicle, found evidence of web like structures suggesting that spiders or similar creatures once inhabited that planet. True or false?
0: Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Can't even remember where it went. Was it Mars? Was it in Mars? Yes, uh, yes. I'm going to say false.
4: Well, Amanda, I have to say, well done. You've got you did very well there. You beat the goalkeeper hands down on that one. Um, and Sadly, whilst the spiders from Mars were real, they were actually rock star David Bowie and his <laughs> alter ego Ziggy Stardust backing band, as you will well know. And uh, I, p- Peter, yeah, will well I would know.
0: I would have been in real uh, trouble if I got that one. But, but,
4: <laughs> But, but, you know, who knows? Is there life on Mars? Um, they well they may well be. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if that included spiders at some point in their, their history. But anyway, I would encourage all of our listeners uh, to look kindly on spiders. You know, I think just see how many different ones there are you can spot. I mean, they're in an amazing array. A big shout out to the British Arachnological Society, uh, who have got a fantastic website and some great references uh, and there's a really fantastic wild guide field guide to britain spiders so if anybody's interested at all it's, it's a fantastic reference book so what better present could you get by than uh, field guide to spiders but yeah joking apart they are amazing amazing order of creatures they that are. are often overlooked often feared but um without them you know the food chain would collapse uh, and our uh, the biodiversity and the habitat um, you know habitats we've been talking about would uh, wouldn't exist and we'd so
0: be knee deep in rubbish because they we would
4: be we would be, they,
0: you know, particularly in, uh, yep. you know, my mother used to say, "a million spiders an acre." And if you are frightened of spiders, get yourself down to London Zoo because they do a spider a course where you actually get by the end of the day you overcome your fear to such an extent that you can have a tarantula sitting on your hand, apparently. So, a little plug for the zoo there too. So,
1: absolutely, it's
0: it's it's curable. Thank you, Jim. And thank you to Beth, our producer who's done such a brilliant job over the last few months, and also to all our listeners at Planet Pod. We really, really value your comments and thoughts and feedback. And please keep in touch with us and please keep sharing the programme with all your friends and families because downloads are good for us. Um, And all I have to do now is to wish you a very happy Christmas and thanks for listening. And happy Christmas, Beth, and to Jim.
4: Thank you. And to you as well, Amanda, and to all our listeners.
0: You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.